Let me turn you to Romans chapter 13. If we are supposed to be subject to our parents, are they the only authority God has placed over us? Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever reject, resists authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Terrible words. You also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor that God has placed over us, beginning at home. I'd like to turn you to Romans chapter 5. Our scripture reading. Given the topic that we have today, and uh, you may wonder about uh, what I'm going to do with Matthew 4, uh, and wonder why I picked Romans. But uh, Romans is the systematic theology of the New Testament. And so you're going to get into systematic theology every time you open Scripture, particularly Romans. But today we're going to get into it in Matthew chapter 4. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6 and reading through verse 20. For when we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. And yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, so much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we shall rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the offense, one offense, resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, 
much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through the life through the reign in the life of one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came on all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, as I promised, I'd like to turn you to Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses. And as I begin, I would like to remind you that the purpose of this sermon is to show what Jesus had to do to redeem us. Okay, that's our purpose. Even if it seems like it takes me a while to get there. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had feasted 40 days and 40, fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with me, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, the angels came and ministered to him. And if I can add one last line from Luke's version of this. Uh, he left him until a more opportune time. Temptation wasn't over. Just this aspect of it. First question I would need to ask you and to have you think about is, why is Jesus tempted? I mean, we know who he is. Is Satan so blind that he does not recognize the second person of the Trinity? If he sees Jesus as he is, then it is makes no sense in the temptation. If he understands that he's looking at God, the second person of the Trinity, why would you tempt God to be inconsistent? I mean, Satan may not be the brightest thing on our, on, in God's creation, but he's sure ahead of us. I would think that it made no sense to try to tempt God himself to break his own rules. 
to become christened, to become inconsistent for no useful reason. Why would God need to prove anything like this? Jesus could say, look, I can walk down off of this pinnacle of the temple. I made manna for 40 years. I can eat that. And I don't know who you think you are, but you don't rule those kingdoms. You couldn't give them to me if you wanted to. The problem, I think, is he doesn't understand who Jesus is at all. As a matter of fact, I'll say it again probably that you may report that I don't believe that Satan knows who Jesus is at this point. I don't think he recognizes who Jesus is and understands it until the veil in the temple is torn after Jesus has said it is finished. And then he realizes that all of his efforts to destroy Jesus was only offering the sacrifice that destroyed his work. That's where we're heading. He doesn't see Jesus because he doesn't understand what it means to be the Son of God. If I were to turn you to Genesis uh, chapter 3, and you could see the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman will destroy the work of Satan. And so here it is, the seed of the woman. Well, that could be a man. In fact, it has to be a man. So what is a man? Jesus doesn't see him, excuse me, Satan doesn't see him as God. He sees him as a man. But, well, I guess I should put it this way. Jesus isn't the first son of God. Not according to Scripture. If I turned you to the Gospel of Luke, and there in chapter 3, verse 38, you would see the reading, Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. Now, Satan knows, because it's been done in his time, that uh, God said to him at the the blessing of his baptism, God said to him, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay. So he says Jesus is his Son. But in Satan's thinking, I propose, that Adam was God's son. And Satan can say, look, I got the first one. The second one may be tougher, but I can get him too. Sons of God are not. Well, I guess we have to look just a little bit at the Hebrew for a minute. Uh, What is a son in the Bible? I propose it's not the little boy that mom brings home from the hospital. It's the person who acts like and thinks like you do, carrying what you are to the next generation. So a disciple might be, a grandson might be, second or third child might be, uh, who knows, maybe even a daughter might be. They would carry you to the next generation and describe what you were, teach what you, what you taught, think like you did. You see, when in Colossians 3.15 it says that Jesus is the exact it says Jesus is the son of the Father okay the exact image of the Father the idea is that the word exact is missing Jesus is the image of God yes he is 
The same way Adam was. No. Because Jesus is not the image of God. Please, that's not heresy. Give me a minute. Jesus is God. Okay? And we need to keep that in mind. We keep thinking that a son is exactly what his father is. Jesus is exactly what his father is. But that's not how we usually use the word son. Okay? He's the one who carries him to the next generation. But he isn't necessarily exactly the same. I can't, well, I can talk with a Philadelphia accent if you want me to. But uh, I don't usually do that. My father did. He had a terrible Philadelphia accent. I'm not exactly what my father was. Jesus is God. He is exactly what God is. Now take the Westminster Shorter Catechism for a minute. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. Jesus is the Son. That's His office. Okay? Please. You're going to look at me and you're going to say, this doesn't make any logical sense. The Trinity doesn't make logical sense to us. It can't. Okay? So Jesus is exactly God because He is God. So, why the temptation? Why doesn't God just say to Satan, you can't handle this guy, you can't touch this guy, and he's going to do everything the way I want, and that's it. God's sacrifice to be perfect must pass under priestly inspection. So he must be, in this case, the incarnate son, so that even Satan cannot accuse God of breaking his justice. He has to be perfect. Cannot deal with any sin. Cannot have any sin in his life. He has to have endured every trance, every temptation that was possible. You see, God's justice is the point of the incarnation. If God didn't need to do his justice and to make his justice known clearly like that, if God didn't need to, he just has said, okay, uh, I'll count everybody's sins taken care of because Jesus would take care of it. Because I would let that happen. My mercy is so great that I won't send anybody to hell. It's not what he said. Because he is indeed demonstrably, completely just. So the sacrifice that is made must be demonstrably and completely righteous. So there's no sin that can be brought against him. And nobody can say, well, he didn't die for this one because he didn't know about it. Okay? He endured all kinds of temptation, every kind of temptation, even if we only see here a summary of them. He must, if he's going to pay for our sins, pay for each sin appropriately. Not giving a general thing, oh, I died for sin, so any sin I'll just take care of. The sin had to be brought, the sacrifice had to be brought as God demonstrated in his picture of justice called the Old Testament sacrificial system. For every sin there had to be the sacrifice brought. The one that was appropriate for that sacrifice. There is no other way 
for God's consistency to stand than that each temptation of us or each sin of us must be paid for. God is absolutely just, but he's also absolutely merciful. I know we can't be more than one thing absolutely. But we're not God. And that's where logic breaks down. God is able to. So God says, I'm going to be absolutely just. Here's what I demand. And so here it is. Jesus is going to have to endure every single temptation that every one of the people he's going to die for will endure in their lives. Even if they haven't been born yet. Yes, please. You may remind, you may be reminded that what I'm saying is that all of your sins were paid for. Not bought, but paid for. The price was paid before you were born. At the time the sin is there, Jesus steps in and says, this one's mine. That's what mean, what Revelation means when it says, at the judgment, Jesus will open the book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And there he will see the names. And I suspect it will be all of the times. Every single temptation. Because you were tempted, Jesus had to die because somebody tempted you or because you were tempting yourself or because you succumbed to that temptation or because you looked at it and you said, well, no, I won't. But you thought about it for a while. See, God's interested in our being perfect. So therefore, this passage is the recording of Jesus as he is tempted. And it's there for our assurance. So beginning at verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Notice who leads him up there. The devil's not leading Jesus. The Holy Spirit's leading him. The Holy Spirit's putting him in this place where Satan will be allowed to tempt him. Right? Remember the book of Job? That uh, Satan had to ask God's permission to do something to Job? Well, God's giving Satan permission. Satan doesn't know that he's being asked, given permission to do it to God himself. He just knows he's been given permission. And the Holy Spirit takes him there. And the Holy Spirit prepares him for this temptation. Uh, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> you bet he was hungry. Fasted 40 days and 40 nights. What would that do to you? Probably kill us. What does a good diet do to you? And it takes away your laugh. Makes you feel sorry for yourself. It takes away your energy. 40 days and 40 nights. So Jesus is in as weakened a condition as a human body can be. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, and remember, he's remembering that Jesus, Jesus had been told this by God at his baptism by John the Baptist. There was the God, God came and the Father said, and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Satan knows that Jesus has been called the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, then command that these stones become bread. Well, 
that would solve the problem of being hungry. It would raise his spirits. It wouldn't give him back his energy. Jesus says something strange, however. Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If I turn you to Exodus chapter 34, verse 2, Moses is on Mount Horeb for 40 days and 40 nights. He's there twice. Once the first time he gets the law, once the second time he gets the law. If I turn you to 1 Kings chapter 19, and verse 8, Elijah's there 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness talking to God. And in neither case do they seem to have lost anything at all of their physical capabilities. So Jesus is simply saying to Satan, uh, God said it. He's demonstrated it. He's demonstrated that man doesn't live by bread alone. His His flesh was deprived, but it's also possible that God can take care of that. Now, I suppose I should stop for just a moment and say, is it possible too in the temptation that Jesus could fail? Can God fail to do what he wants to do? No. Can God fail to do what uh, he has said he's going to do? No. Jesus was born without sin. He was not Joseph's son. His incarnation was the Holy Spirit's son. Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't like us, even though he looked like us and had the physical characteristics of us. He had no sin to pull him down. He had no sin to start with to blame him with. No part of Adam and Eve's sin original sin he had none of that so what is Satan going to do if Jesus can't sin is the temptation real yeah because his human nature would say this is real this is what I am I'm tired I'm weak but God did this before And God did it more than once before. And God says that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hmm. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I suppose there's a question that needs to be asked here. What's that concept doing here? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God said, don't sin. He said that to Moses. He said that to Elijah. And he's saying that in his son. Don't sin. How can I not sin if this is what's happening to me? Please remember that we don't speak Hebrew very well. Even those of us who had to study it. But the word word in Hebrew does not mean what it means to us. To us, a word is a symbol for a meaning. In Hebrew, it's a command. 
Man will not live by bread alone, but by every command that comes out of the mouth of God. God said, don't do this. God said, resist this temptation to Moses, to Elijah. Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to resist this temptation. That's the command of God and I have to obey that. I have trusted God. I have done so. I have seen what has happened before. In fact, I am the one who did what has happened before. And so, I'm going to say to you, Satan, you don't know what you're talking about. Man shall not live by bread alone. You think that's what keeps a man alive. It is not. It's the command of God. What command? How do you breathe? Do you realize that you breathe because God says to your body, breathe? Do you eat because God says to your body, eat? Do you realize that everything you do is done by God's command because He is that manipulative of your life? That's the Holy Spirit's work. Now God uses that. Sometimes He keeps people alive for a long time only to demonstrate that their sin is there. Sometimes He keeps people alive for only a short time because He's already demonstrated as much as He has desired that person to do in His Word. So a child may die young, maybe even in the womb. It's not because God missed something. It's because that's what God had planned. God planned what is bringing me here today. God planned is why I am leaning on the pulpit. And in a few minutes, we'll probably sit on my chair. Okay? Medical problems that I have. God planned them. He plans everything about our lives. So I suppose I'd like to apply that. It is my first point. The temptations will be the three points. Do we trust God? Do we trust that He will provide all of our needs? Look at the manna in the wilderness. What was Israel asked to do for 40 years? Go out six, uh, six mornings a week and gather this stuff off the ground that you can't describe. We can't describe it today either. Uh, and then take it home and mash it up or boil it or whatever you want and eat it. And it will sustain your life. Do we trust God like that? Israel did, even though they had a few things that they didn't live up to. Can you imagine being there on the day when Jesus told the crowd to sit down? The disciples had come and said, you know, he had said to them, you, we ought to send them away and get them something to eat. And then Jesus had said to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And they said, we don't have anything. All we have is one little lunch here. McDonald's Happy Meal, if you'll pardon the expression. Okay? Five little biscuits and two fish. Jesus said, sit down. And he fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Sometime later, he did the same thing. He said, uh, there are 4,000 people here. The disciples says, said, we should send them away now so they can get to town and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. Well, they had a few loaves of bread. They had 12 baskets full after Jesus got done feeding the 4,000. you trust God like that? The disciples didn't. They had to be surprised. 
In fact, they had to really be surprised. On one time when they were going across the lake and Jesus was telling them about the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and the disciples said, that's because we forgot bread. And Jesus says to them, are you so short in memory that you don't remember the 5,000 or the 4,000? Why do you think I'm talking about bread? Do you trust God like that? I suspect that I trust God like the disciples did on the boat. Second application. How about our desire? Our desires for for being thanked for the things that we do. We have given something. How many people came back and thanked Jesus for the food those days? How will I show off? How will I show off let your light so shine? How will I show off let your right hand let your left hand not know what your right hand is doing? So I look at what I have in the cupboard, and here it is, and somebody comes, and I'm not prepared to have company today, I don't have enough food. Am I going to say, Well, maybe I don't have enough food today? Or am I going to say, well, if I give it today, I won't have enough for tomorrow? Are we going to say that? Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? Or or the other way around? Because Jesus is in charge of this, and he can make these things happen, and he did. In the Old Testament, he went to that widow, and he said to the widow, "Uh, make make a little cake for me. Okay? And she said, there's no flour. It's just one little bit of flour. I came, I've got one, one, one spoonful of oil and a little bit of flour and I'm going to bake a biscuit for my son and myself and we're going to eat and we're going to die. Jesus said, and Jesus said, make me one first. Excuse me, the prophet said, make me one first. And what happened? For three and a half years, the flour didn't get less and the oil didn't get less. Do you trust God like that? Or would a temptation like that make us do something different than Jesus did? <clears throat> do we trust that God will not let us be without what we need? That He will let us not be honored by Him? <clears throat> Is His honor in how He deals with us more to us than whatever we can provide for ourselves or whatever man can provide for us? Let's take an example. How about fellowship or friendship from your spouse, your family? Do we have to see to it that uh, we have those kinds of things? And if God doesn't provide them, are we upset? And can we say, God, you haven't done these things for me, so I don't have to do things for you? Okay, it's not bread, but it's a command. Do we have to see do we have to seek to live when we break his law? Do we have to seek to say something about that? Or do we pray that God will make us see it and turn from it and attend to us? Does God provide for us the attention from someone we want to have love us? Or do we get to do anything we want to get that make that get that attention? Is that what we do? 
How did you how did you pick your spouse? How did you pick your parents? How do you pick pick your friends? You do something to impress them so that they think you're great. Does that work? Let's move on to the second point. The second temptation. The devil then took him up to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. You are quoting quoting the scripture. I'll quote the scripture. He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. We would probably translate that stubborn toe today. Hmm. I suppose first thing we need to do is say, what's such a big deal about this? William Henderson in his commentary says, the word literally is on the wing of the temple that looks over the Kidron Valley. Uh, Josephus says that's a drop of about what we would call 450 feet today and it's a dazzling height. So you're looking at a big cliff and you're going to jump. You're going to do that? Well, God can do anything He wants. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, the Lord says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus has not yet walked on water in His incarnation. He has not yet ascended to heaven in His incarnation. Satan has no evidence to see whether or not he can do these kinds of things. So he would be stupid to do this unless he could command God. So you will not tempt God. So you will not put God in a position where he has to prove himself to you. We'll do that because you're not his boss. You're not even important enough that you would have the privilege of doing that. So what's going on here? Is Satan saying, what is your trust, Jesus? Or is he saying, we know God's not capable of it, so are you going to back down? What's he saying? And then Jesus answers, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What is being tested in Satan's mind is whether or not God would be willing to break his creation rules to protect Jesus he's going to jump the normal reaction of that the way God has designed the world that he's going to fall the 450 feet and he's going to be squashed okay is God going to break those rules is God going to send somebody down because Jesus is so important to him he's going to send the angels down to to hold him up so that he doesn't stub his foot against the stone? What would you do? Well, let me put it in some terms that we might be more easily able to understand. Does God have to protect your life on earth? Can you be involved in a car wreck? Can you get cancer? Can there be an earthquake that makes the house fall down on top of you? That probably won't happen here, but it does happen in California where we live. Uh, 
Does God have to make it so that uh, every time somebody sneaks up on the back behind you, they're not going to mug you and, and kill you? Does God have to do that? Does God's protection mean that he go, you're going to live to be four score years and ten? If by reason of strength it be four score years, then it's life. That is still sorrow, strength, waste. For you're soon cut off and you fly away. Does God have to do that? Do you think God has to do that? <laughs> do you pray, for example, that you don't have a car accident? That might be wise. But you pray because you say, God, you can't let me die in a car accident? You can't let me get cancer? You can't let someone I love get cancer? You have to do this? You see, what's being said here to us is God's not under obligation to do what we want. He's not even ob under obligation to protect our lives. He's only under obligation to redeem our souls if that's what he's promised to do. Everything that happens to you is in God's plan and in God's goodness. Doesn't matter what it is. Everything is what God has planned for you to glorify his name. Do we have the right to expect that all of the things that go wrong in our lives will work out right? According to us? Or will they work out right according to God? Which may not be exactly what we thought it was going to be. How important are our desire for a long life or our goals to be accomplished. I can't die yet, Lord. I've got to finish this. How important is that? When we recognize that God has the authority to do to us what He wants, and He can use whatever means He wants to do it, but we don't have the right to say to Him, "I know You want me to do this, so I'm going to jump off this cliff, and You have to save me to finish Your work." That's what Satan is tempting Jesus to do. How important do we think we are? Jesus is answering for us. Answering for our view of ourselves. The importance of our value. The things that we have. The things that we want to do. He says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You will not do these kinds of things. Now, you can look around at all kinds of applications for that. Uh, whether you take particular treatments for cancer, whether you find some other thing that you can do to uh, to live longer, you can check that out. Take that out before take that up before the Lord. I'm not going to try to go into those things today. I'm just saying that when God sends something along to you, He has a purpose for it. Okay. And that purpose is to glorify Him even if you don't think He can. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, and if I may be so bold, because we're children of Adam, we are all sons of God or grandsons or maybe great-grandsons to the nth degree. Okay? Does God have to support us that way? 
Can we demand that of Him? Jesus says, no. And He answers for us. So let's take that third temptation. Jesus is tempted to trade His worship of God for His goals in life. You ever have that happen? Ever have that happen because you decided you just got to have a little bit more money so you're going to break one of the commandments and you're going to spend Sunday at work? Do you ever have that? Do you ever say, oh, I just got to have this, I just got to have this and my neighbor has it and if I'm just careful and quiet he won't know that I took it from him? temptation is that would you trade what God has commanded for what you want and would you say that is appropriate that's what Satan's saying you think it's important Jesus that you should rule the the, the nations of the earth you say it because God said it to you that you would you got to think that way so you're going to do what to do that Satan says, look, I own all these things. Okay, I know Satan doesn't own the whole world. He doesn't own any of the world. But he is, according to color, to uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is the God of this world. And this world, outside of those whom Christ has called to himself, worships him. And if he says, worship this guy, we will. Isn't that what Revelation's about with the beasts and the dragon? Hmm. so what do we do when we're faced with something where God has given us a command an order and we want something else and so we're going to trade what we want for what God says he wants now I'm challenging you and as I said to you I'm not interested in picking on you Please remember that as my teachers used to say, anytime you point a finger at somebody, you're pointing three at least back at yourself. So I'm preaching this sermon to me. Every one of these temptations I have wrestled with, and a few more I'm not going to share with you. Okay? Satan, what would Satan want us to do to be to be able to help mankind? So if I want people to come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, all I have to do is modify what faith in Jesus Christ means. All I have to do is say, uh, it only takes a little bit to serve Jesus Christ. You've got all the commandments, you know what they are, but you can fudge some of them. God isn't that specific, he isn't that, that strict. You can fudge some of them. Satan says that. If we did that in our churches, what would happen? <laughs> we get a lot of the big churches like we have now. I saw a cartoon that uh, I was impressed with. It uh, shows uh, two guys, two possibly what are supposed to represent angels, 
speaking to God, and they say, they actually discovered, they actually decided on free will, like you said they would. So if we tell people you really have free will and it's all up to you and if you want to be good and if you're good enough, you will do it and you will bless God and praise Him and you'll ask for salvation and He will give you salvation because He said He would and so you don't have to do anything for Him. You just have to call on His name. Ever hear of a church that said once the water hits your head, you're saved? Yeah, I know too many of them. Can we break His commands and still be worshiping Him? Can we still be doing His work if we're consciously breaking His commands? I hate to break the news to you, but at least for me, the only work that God gets done to His satisfaction in my life is what He makes my whole, what makes the Holy Spirit make me do, and what He makes the Holy Spirit make what I tried to do acceptable. Get away, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Would a little white lie help us sometimes? Oh, I wasn't paying attention, officer. I didn't see the sign. Oh, you know, play like that lady down in Dallas. She had a ticket for driving in the multiple vehicle lane. She said, I'm eight months pregnant. What are you going to do? Do you do those kinds of things? Is it just a little white lie? I suppose I should ask the question a little differently. Are there any little sins? What's the price of any sin? Every single sin? Hell forever? So could I say or would I be able to think that God didn't really mean so strict an obedience to his commands or an obedience to the things that uh, he has put in our, in our, our way? Would God really mean that? Oh, he's, he's just not that strict. He doesn't pay that much attention. Are our worlds, are, are our works actually totally depraved? Totally depraved. That means everything we do is tainted with sin, no matter how good we think it is. It's tainted with sin. It's not acceptable to God. Only the works of the Holy Spirit are acceptable to God, and only the works of Jesus, who was God, are acceptable. So the devil left him. When Jesus had said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I suppose that's my challenge to us today. But please, that's not my point. Jesus must be pure from all of the sins and all of the attitudes of mankind in order to be the appropriate sacrifice for us. He must know each of our sins and be able to testify to the Lord, to the judgment at the court, that he died for those sins. And he promises for those people who, who are his, whose names are written in his book of life, that he did. So when he says and convinces you by the Holy Spirit that you are his, 
He came and He paid for all of the sins that you are. And you've got a list. In fact, you've got more than a list. I have more than a list. And so what the temptation shows is that Jesus has gone to the point of saying, everything that could be charged against you, I have paid for. Every fine that there could be, I have paid for. That's the size, the power, the consideration, and the promise of our Savior. That's the point today. Okay? Yes, we're all sinners. I want you to know that. But I want you to know that you have a lawyer, an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he stands before God at the judgment. In fact, I suppose I could put it this way. little little digression. You had to go to court. You're sitting in court and your lawyer is sitting beside you. And the judge comes into the courtroom and the judge says, the, the bailiff says, All rise. And the judge walks in and everyone stands up. And the judge looks over at your lawyer and says, Hi, son, how are you today? You feel pretty good, right? That's not what happened. The bailiff comes in and he says, All rise. And your lawyer takes the bench. Because according to Matthew 24, it's Jesus who will do the judging. The one who died for all those sins. The one who is intimately acquainted with all those sins that are ours. Who judges us. And who says, this one is mine. And our sin is forgiven. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we come before you. We look at our lives and we look at what we have been and what we are. And we are amazed. Amazed that you would have anything to do with us. But you do. By your grace, you have taken us and you have promised to die for us and you did die for us. And so we look in awe and plead with you that by your spirit you would make us better able to serve you than we are now and we have been. We plead for that. Not for our sakes. For the sake of your glory and your name and your honor. Amen.